Anybody do any genealogical research? Do yeah. anybody know of anybody that's like big time in your background? Yeah, I don't either. I I don't do much genealogical research. I I know back to <clears throat> on my dad's side. I probably know back to my great grandparents. My mom's side. I know back to her parents, and that's about it. And let me tell you what defines my ancestry from the people that I know. Cole. That's about all I know, I guess. Um, my grandfather on my dad's side and his father, this is as far back as I know, they mined coal. That's what they did. Um, little tiny coal camp in southern West Virginia. Dirt poor, most of the time. Um, and of the itsy bitsy teeny weeny bit of research that I've done, that's what I know. Now, there are people who can trace back and say, wow, you know, I could trace my lineage back to royalty or back to somebody famous or maybe Hitler or I don't know. Um, uh, he's in somebody's lineage. I mean, somebody's, yeah, somebody's saddled with that. Who do the Jews trace their lineage back to? The guy named Abraham. You all know Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons said, oh, wow, this is happening. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And we'll stop there, okay? Okay. <clears throat> I can't wait to listen to the tape on that one. Uh, they're still doing it back there, by the way. There's right arms going up. <laughs> now, I can look back at my lineage, and I, I can take a pride in my ancestry because, and the pride that I can take is I can look back and my father, his father, and his father I can at least say worked really hard. They're workers. My dad is 71, soon to be 72 by the grace of God. And they called him the worm in the mines because all he does is turn and turn and turn and turn and turn. My dad's the kind of guy that, <clears throat> hey, let's go dig the ditch for the water line, which consisted of me handing him tools because, here, let me show you how to do this. Never mind, I'll just do it. And that's, just, that's how that operated. So I'm like, okay. Mom's coming up. Why aren't you helping? I'm like, what? what? I don't know what to do. He just is a machine. You know, this is just like a, a ditch witch or something. But hard work. I can look back on my lineage, the small amount, and say, hard work, hard work. That's my heritage. The Jews would look back at Abraham, and what we're going to see today is they kind of had a mixed bag of descriptors, a mixed bag of how they viewed Abraham, about who Abraham was and what that meant for them. But Paul gives us a very clear picture of Abraham and who he was and what he was supposed to signify, not just for the Jews, but again, I am one of them and so are you. So we're all children of Abraham if we're Christians, if we're believers. And we're going to talk about that some today so that you might get a little better picture. If you have your Bibles, and I would really highly suggest you have a Bible in front of you today, We'll have the main passage up on the screen, but we're going to go to several passages that are a little extended, so I didn't want to put them up there. So we're going to flip around a little bit. Be very, very wise to have a copy of the Scriptures in your possession. It's going to help make this message a little easier for you. <coughs> Excuse me. And again, quickly, we are in our second section of Romans justification by faith, the means for being right with God. Two out of six points. We'll move into the third point eh, probably in a couple of weeks. Uh, we're in no hurry to get through chapter 4. There's a lot of good stuff in chapter 4. Um, <clears throat> sin was our first point, and we found that everybody has a need for being right with God because everybody's a sinner. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just... Um, hmm. Praise God for being sinners? Maybe. Maybe. But we moved into uh, justification by faith, the means for being right with God a couple of weeks ago. 
And that's where we're right in the middle of today. What we're going to cover today is Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> and I trust that as we look back at the heritage, the lineage of the Jewish people, that we just might find something that's important for us. It just seems to be how the Holy Spirit works it, right? That this word is pertinent. This word is important to you. Um, let me, if you would stand, I'm going to read these first eight verses of chapter four. <clears throat> if you can, if you have that option, ability. Romans chapter four, verses one through eight. I think I've got it. It's like, yeah, we talked about it. Okay. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Uh -huh. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray. God, we boast in your ability this morning to make this, this message, these words clear to us. We boast in Your Holy Spirit's ability to teach us what we cannot learn in and of ourselves. We need revelation. We need illumination so that these words become living and active in our lives. We do believe that Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we ask that today, by the power of Your Spirit, by the power of Your written revealed Word, that You would pierce us to the division of soul and spirit, of bone and marrow, so that we might internalize this Word so that it can be lived out through us. We need your Spirit's help and we ask for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> We're going to start with the first three verses and then work our way through the rest of this passage. And I definitely hit the button too many times. There it is. <clears throat> now we have talked to this point about those Asians, expiation, propitiation, imputation, justification, salvation, and that means nothing to some of you. It means a whole lot to a lot of you, hopefully. Let me just recap that because we're going to talk about some of this today and how it was fleshed out. What we're looking at today is how all of this was embodied in a person, which will be Abraham. Expiation was God taking the guilt of our sins away from us. Propitiation is God taking away His anger towards sin away from us. And, he, and Christ bore the wrath for our sins so that we don't have to bear that wrath. That's propitiation. Imputation is God giving us the very righteousness of Christ. We're not guilty anymore. He's not angry anymore. So He gives us the very righteousness of Christ. That's imputation. And that gives us the standing of justification, which means I can come to God and stand in His presence and deserve to be there. And by the way, imputation is a huge part of that. A righteousness that is not our own based on our works or our merits, but based on the finished work of Jesus. We'll talk about that today. And that, all being said, leads to salvation. So that's huge in what we're going to talk about today. <clears throat> so let me start with verses 1 through 3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, we just came out of our discussion last week about boasting being excluded in God's presence. And that's a lot of what we sang about this morning. I will make my boast in Christ alone. And my only boast is you is how we finished. That was the last verse that we sang. <coughs> I 
and that is because their boasting is excluded in the presence of God because we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. We also saw last week <clears throat> that the law of faith actually upholds the written law. And that was just as simple as the point of the written law was to point us to Christ, to show us that we couldn't keep it, that we couldn't be perfect, which is what God deserves. He deserves perfection. He, I said deserves, He, he uh, expects, He requires, that's the word I'm looking for, He requires perfection if somebody's going to stand in His presence. So we don't have that. The law shows us that because all of those laws, it seems like I can read through them and go, okay, I, I, I don't eat shellfish, so I'm good there. Um, I do wear the two uh, fabric. I shouldn't do that. Sabbath, how's all that fit in? We talked about that some last week. The moral law that we're supposed to uphold now in the power of the Spirit, I don't know about you guys. Well, yeah, I do. I fail every day. And yet... God accepts me, accepts me into His presence because the law of faith upholds the law, shows that the law was pointing us to Christ who kept the law when we couldn't. And so my law of faith in Christ upholds the written law because it tells me that I can't do it. So I say, Amen, I can't do it. So the law of faith actually upholds the written law. Now the Holy Spirit through Paul wants to give us a concrete example of how this looks in flesh and blood. So the thought pattern goes all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish people. We've talked a lot about the law at this point, which goes back to Moses. Okay, And there would be some pride. There would be some um, looking back at Moses and going, man, Moses was a great guy. Moses, God chose to give us the law through Moses. And their boast would be in the law. And their boast could be in Moses. But they go further back and their true boast comes from their singular forefather. Before Moses, well before Moses, a guy named Abraham, who was actually named Abram, and God changed his name to Abraham. We won't get into all of that this morning. <coughs> so he goes all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish people, and he goes to Abraham himself. God had chosen Abraham out of all of the people of the earth to establish as the father or the beginning of of God's people. Now what does that look like? We'll talk about that. The importance of Abraham to the Jewish mind, to the Jewish reader, cannot be overstated. When the Jews thought about Abraham, they swelled with pride. I can be proud of my dad, I can be proud of my granddad, I can be proud of my granddad's dad, and I can look back and say, hard workers, thump my chest. But let me tell you what these Jews felt when you started talking about Father Abraham. It was a unique sense of joy, pride. I guess some would probably push that into arrogance, but there was just this Father Abraham. He was venerated. He was loved. He was respected. And they would say, I am Abraham's seed. And there was great joy in that for them. So it can't be overstated how much they enjoyed thinking about and enjoyed talking about being Abraham's seed. <clears throat> as important as the law was, Abraham was more important than the law to the Jew. He was the father of the nation of Israel. He is where it all began for them. And how did it begin with them? I want to look at a few passages. Go back to the beginning of your Bible. I want to start in Genesis chapter 11. First book of the Bible. Genesis which means beginnings. Genesis chapter 11. Now there's a lengthy passage here that we're not going to read all of. <coughs> we're going to start in chapter 11 verse 10. And we're going to skim through to chapter 12 verse 4. I, I promise I'm not going to read all those verses. There's a lot of so-and-so lived this many years and fathered so-and-so. But look at 11.10, Genesis 11.10. These are the generations of Shem. Who was Shem? Anybody know? Noah's son. Okay, so pretty much everybody knows who Noah was. Anybody heard about Noah's flood, Noah's ark, animals, two by two, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so Shem, Shem 
I don't, I don't want to come in shimp. I, want, I keep wanting to come, you know, it's the Three Stooges thing. I keep wanting to say shimp. Shem was Noah's son. So Shem had been on the ark. He had been one of the uh, two, four, six, eight people who had been saved from the flood by the ark. And it says when he was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad. And we'll go on. Arpachshad fathered Shelah. Shelah fathered Eber. Eber fathered Peleg. Now what kind of name is Peleg? I got a story about that, but I won't tell it. <clears throat> um, Peleg lived 30 years. He fathered Ryu. Ryu lived 32 years and fathered Sirug. These guys need new names. Uh, Sirug lived 30 years. He fathered Nahor. Nahor lived 29 years. He fathered Terah. Nahor lived after he fathered Terah. And Terah lived 70 years. He fathered who? Abram. Now these are the generations of Terah. Verse 27. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans, Chaldeans, take your pick. So let me just say, this was not the land of Israel. This was to the east of Israel, quite a ways, the modern day Iraq, dead center of Iraq, what we would call Iraq. So one thing I want you to note real quick is Father Abraham didn't come from the land of Israel. He didn't come from that little strip of land that was the promised land. Okay? <clears throat> so verse uh, 29. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. That is important. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So they didn't make it to Canaan. They left Ur, and they ended up in Haran. Something happened, though. Terah died in Haran. First, uh, chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you, singular, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, singular, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with them. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And where is he going? He don't know where he's going. God said, go. When you get there, I'll tell you you're there. Have ever had that discussion with your kids? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are they, where are we going? Where are we going? Hey, who's going to be there when we get there? Shut up. Hey, are we there yet? Hey, it's been two minutes. No, we're not, we've not even fastened our seatbelts yet. I'll tell you when we get there. Till then, open an app or something. I don't know. Just be quiet. So Abram was a descendant of Shem, who was one of Noah's sons and who had been saved through the flood by the grace of God. All through the genealogy, we see nothing that would say anything special about Abram and why God chose to single him out. You see anything that he did that made him special? He was the son of somebody. That's all that he did, which is not really doing anything. We do see him being obedient after God's call, but we don't see any specific quality or act that would make God sit up and take notice and say, hey, I'm going to pick Abram. He's my guy. Now, flip over a few books to Joshua. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. So we're going to leave the first five books of the Bible, which, which are called the Pentateuch, and we're going to go to Joshua. Joshua chapter 24, and I just want to read you something about who Abram was and what he came from. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 24, the last chapter of Joshua. Joshua's getting ready to die, and he's just reminding the Israelites. Joshua had led the Israelites into the promised land after Moses' death, so this is a long time after Abraham. And this is what he says. 
uh, looking at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 24. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served who? What? Other gods. Not really what you would expect from your spiritual heritage, huh? They served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And then he goes on, Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Esau had this land. And I sent Moses and Aaron years later and I plagued Egypt. So, what kind of spiritual heritage did Abram have? His fathers served other gods. So were they worshipers of the one true God? The answer is no, concretely, no. What about Abraham? We don't have any reason to believe that he worshipped God before God called him. No reason to believe that. Maybe he did, but Scripture does not show us that at all. His fathers worshipped other gods. And I would. it sounds to me, and again, if this is conjecture... Hang me on a spit after dinner. It sounds to me like Abraham's bunched in with his fathers. That he was a worshiper of other gods. Okay? <clears throat> you say, well, why do I care? Why would God choose this guy? Surely there was somebody somewhere who was worshiping the one true God. And God could say, okay, this guy's been good. I'll pick him. Right? Maybe. I mean, later Abraham runs into a guy named Melchizedek and it says that he is priest of God Most High. So there was somebody somewhere worshiping God that God could have said, here's some people worshiping me, I'm going to pick them. But instead, God reaches down into the middle of Iraq and picks a guy who's probably worshiping other gods and says, I'm going to make you the father of my people. Okay? <clears throat> now, go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15. <clears throat> you have to understand this backstory to understand what Paul's saying in the book of Romans. Now we actually looked at this back in an earlier section of Romans, so we won't spend a lot of time here. What's going on in Genesis 15? God is about to establish His covenant with Abram. And remember who walked through the pieces of the animals? God was both parties that went through which was God's way of saying, when you break the covenant, I'll pay the penalty for you breaking the covenant. What I want to look at today in Genesis 15 is just verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> and this is what God said to Abram, whose fathers had worshipped other gods. He's got him into Canaan. He's got, he got him to where he was taking him, and he said, this is where I want you to be which the Israelites would call the promised land later when they were in Egypt. So verses 5 and 6 of uh, Genesis 15. And God brought Abram outside, and I'm filling that in, it says, and he brought him. God brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now verse 6. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. Let me read it as it's actually written. He brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So, God promises Abram, at this point his name is still Abram, descendants as numerous as the sand and the stars, and it says that Abram believed God. And what? And that God counted it to him as righteousness. Now remember last week we talked about the word counted and how it was an accounting term which dealt with facts and not speculation. You're going to see that word a lot today. You see it here in Genesis 15. Counted. 
reconciling your account. So what happened here is God put into Abraham's or Abram's account at this point what? Righteousness. Based on what? Abram believing God. God made him a promise. Abram said, okay, I believe that. And God said, righteous. And his account was filled with righteousness. Now what brought about this righteousness? Belief, faith, not works, not moving when God told him to, not worshiping other gods for sure. Now go to Genesis 26. And this will be our last passage in Genesis. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. Let me tell you what's happened. Abram did have a child when he was how old? Anybody remember? 100. Anybody know any 100-year-old new fathers? 9-year-old new mothers? Okay. They couldn't have kids. It was physically impossible. And God told him when Abram was 99, you're going to have a child. Your, your, your wife Sarah is going to have a child. She laughs, he laughs, everybody has a good laugh at God's expense. God says, I'll see you in a year and you're going to have a kid. It happened, okay? The child of promise, which was Isaac. And then God shows up and talks to Isaac. Chapter 26, I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. And here is God talking to Isaac. Sojourn in this land, which is the promised land, and I will be with you and will bless you for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Which is the same thing you told Abraham. Why? Verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. Now what had made Abraham righteous? Faith. Why was God saying that He was going to establish this oath with Abraham's son? Because Abraham had obeyed God's voice, kept God's charge, kept God's commandments, kept God's statutes, and kept God's laws. Abraham's declared righteous because of his faith in God's promises. And then God says, I'm going to fulfill these promises to you, Isaac, because Abraham kept my law. You say, I don't understand. Stay with me. So here God says He will bless Isaac in order to honor the oath that He had made to Abraham. And God says, Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. So taken all together, let's put it all in a package, what we just read, everything. Why did God establish His covenant with Abraham? If we're not careful, we can look at that last passage and say it was because Abram kept God's charge, commandments, statutes, and laws. But remember all the other passages we just looked at. God called Abram, established His covenant with him, and Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. His belief, his trust in God's promises, got righteousness accounted to his account. And then after believing after being declared righteous by God for that faith, then Abraham kept God's laws and commandments. He had been obedient in the past, but that obedience had not earned him righteousness. His belief in what God recognized is what God recognized to declare him righteous. That's very important. You with me? You with me? Making sense? Okay. Now, let me tell you something. The rabbis of Jesus' day, the rabbis of Paul's day, and even a lot of the rabbis of our day taught something different about Abraham. I did not know this until studying for this message. The rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, taught according to tradition that Abram began serving God when he was three. Did you see that in Scripture anywhere? I didn't either. They taught that Abraham did not sin. Now read Genesis. Abraham sinned. Okay? Their veneration of Abraham as their father sounds very similar to the Roman Catholic veneration of Mary as their mother. The, the similarities were eerie. The Roman Catholics believed that Mary never sinned. 
that she was a very special vessel of God who served God in her time, never sinned, never had any other children. And what you see here is the Jewish people have that same veneration, if not even more, for Abraham. And that's what the rabbis taught. They even went as far... There's a verse in Habakkuk. I won't ask you to go there because it's kind of hard to find sometimes. Habakkuk 2.4 says, The righteous shall live by his faith. And we'll see that in connection with Abraham. But they changed that verse. They interpreted it as, The just shall live by his faithfulness which is a big difference. My faith is in somebody else. My faithfulness is what I do. It's a big difference. So they look at Abraham and say, that's our model. That's how we should be. Guy started serving God when he was three. He never sinned. That's what God requires of me. That's how I'm going to be righteous. That's how you're going to be righteous is what they teach. By being like Father Abraham. What this did was make keeping the law the prerequisite for being righteous. And this is what Paul is addressing here in Romans in our passage. He goes back to the beginning with Abraham and points out that it was not his flesh, not his works that made him right with God, but his belief in God. If it had been his works, he would have something to boast about. If it was the fact that he started serving God when he was three and when God approached him... He said, God, I've been serving you since I was three. I've done a good job. You should pick me. We played taboo last night at home. And John and Lily were picking the teams. And I got picked really late. And I'm going, Dad, what? Hurts your feelings. It hurts your feelings when you don't get picked because of your performance, doesn't it? Anybody ever the last kid picked on the playground? Yeah. Okay, I guess I'll take Jason. Uh, yay, me! I want you to get that picture here because there's nothing that singles Abraham out as a guy that God should have picked. Nothing. <clears throat> but God revealed Himself to him and Abraham put his faith in that revelation. If it was his works, he would have something to boast about. But Paul makes it clear there's no room for boasting before God, both in this passage and in what we looked at last week. Remember Romans 3.27? Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So if Abraham had kept the law, he could come to God and he could say, I kept your law, I did it. So I am sure that I am righteous. I'm sure that I have the right to stand before you justified. But that's not what we see. Moses, <clears throat> in writing Genesis, is clear, and Paul reiterates that clarity when they say it was Abraham's faith, his belief, that God used to declare him righteous. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he has nothing to boast about before God. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now verse 4. <clears throat> now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as His due. What happens when you get a job? Hopefully, you get a paycheck, right? Do you sign up and say, I'm going to get a job because I like to donate my time and effort to people for nothing? Anybody ever done that? I have done that. It's not really why I got it. It's not why I go to work tomorrow, Right? You agree with a company when you get a job or a person that you will be working to do something for them in exchange for what? Money. Payment of some kind. Usually money. Sometimes it can be something else. You can work for honey, right? Could I do some work for y'all to earn some honey? They're like, what are you talking about, honey? <laughs> Bees that buzz. Um, anyway... I'll work for you X amount of hours and you'll give me Y amount of money. I'm speaking algebraic. I'm fluent in algebraic. Okay? That's awesome. Somebody laughed at that. <clears throat> it's what's called a quid pro quo agreement, which means this for that. I'll give you this, you give me that. Quid pro quo. Not only am I fluent in algebraic, 
I can read Latin. So I'll give you this time and this effort for that money. Quid pro quo, this for that. For those who work for an employer, their pay is not viewed as a gift. We get paid every two Friday, every other Friday at work. I don't go, man, thank you so much. What did I do to deserve this? I'm the one who sends in the payroll hours. I know exactly what I did to earn this paycheck. They earned that pay either through time, effort, or both. Your wages that you receive are due to you. Anybody ever gotten to payday and had their employer say, we don't have money to pay you? I've been there. I had an employer once who would hold our paycheck sometimes up to five days past payday. So you show up to work, I'm 17 years old, I'm going to go get me a Chick-fil-A sandwich as soon as I get my paycheck cashed. And I walk in, they're like, we're not giving out checks today. I'm like, it's payday, right? Yeah, there's not enough money in the bank to cover the pay. Why is that my problem? Sometimes up to five days. And again, I was 17 living at home, so it wasn't a big deal to me. There were people who counted on that paycheck. And let me tell you what, it got very frustrating because their money wasn't in the bank. I'm like, where's my money? My money wasn't in my hand. How do you think I felt in those times? You think I was like, oh, it's all right. I just love working here so much, I don't even care if you pay me. Not hardly. Now turn that around and put it in the context of working for God. What if, our, what if our righteousness, our justification was a quid pro quo agreement, a this for that agreement? What if God said, you keep the law and I'll give you righteousness? You work hard and I'll pay you in righteousness. Well, in that case, salvation, justification, righteousness would be our wages. They would be due to us. But in this verse, we see Paul setting up the contrast clearly. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If we have to work for our justification, then when we get it, it's not a gift, but it's what we are owed. Now, does God owe you anything? Ever? Does God owe you anything? Ever? You're going, I don't know. <laughs> he doesn't. He does not. By the way, did you see the word counted here? There's that accounting word again. Again, you're going to see this for most of the rest of the book of Romans. It's going to be real important that you understand. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. We have to work for our justification. Then when we get it, it's not a gift, but what we are owed. Counted is the same word we looked at last week and that I mentioned earlier in the passage about Abraham being counted righteous. It's logizomai in the Greek. I am multilingual this morning. And it's that accounting word that heavily infers that something is true based on fact and thus put into an account as so. So here in this context, one's works, one's wages are not accounted to their account as a gift, but as their due. This goes into your account as something that you've earned. But then we go to verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So in contrast with working and earning wages, we see that one who does not work is counted as righteous. Did you catch the finality of that? Whatever is going to be said about this person, one thing is clear, they are not working. And to the one who does not work. We know about that in West Virginia, right? Half the state's unemployed. Over half the state, actually. To the one who does not work, they are not working. Now that word work is... Ergizomai sounds like the accounting term, the accounting term logizomai. Ergo, ergonomics. I know it may sound familiar to anybody. Ergizomai, and it means to work, to labor, to commit, to trade by, to do work, to make gains by trading, to do business, to do, to work out, to exercise, perform, commit, to cause, to exist, to produce, to work for, earn by working 
to acquire. But this person here, this person does not work. This person looking for righteousness does not try to produce righteousness. This person does not try to do business with God and earn righteousness some way. They don't work. But they believe in Him who justifies the ungodly. Here in verse 5, the one who does not work, the one who does not trade or barter in order to make gains, who does not do business, who does not earn by working, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, that is the one whose faith is counted as righteousness. Now there's a contrast that's clear here between working and believing, working and faith. That's imperative to note to get the gist of this passage. One does not, one cannot work to earn justification or righteousness. If God had designed it that way, it would be wages. But as it stands, it is our faith, our belief in contrast to our works that is our justification, just like it was for Abraham. And I believe it's very important to see, let me check this out in this verse, that our belief is in Him who justifies who? Hmm. believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. God justifies ungodly people. And we talked about that a lot a couple weeks ago. That means sinners. And that makes it vital that we understand that we are sinners if we are to receive justification. If somebody has the thought or attitude, well, I'm not too bad, they're already bartering to try to earn their justification. God owes it to me because I've never killed anybody. I've never... whatever. Their works, their efforts are being introduced into the equation, thus making the gift not a gift anymore, but their due, their wages. And we've already seen that to be contrary to God's plan. And if we think back to expiation, propitiation, imputation, justification, salvation, what is God chiefly dealing with there in those Asian words? He's dealing with our sins. Right? Expiation takes away the guilt of our sins. Propitiation removes God's wrath upon our sins. Imputation replaces our sins with Christ's righteousness. Justification declares us righteous in contrast to our sins. And salvation saves us from our sins. And ultimately, if we weren't sinners, we wouldn't need to be justified or saved. All this is built on the foundation of the fact that we are ungodly. We are not like God in and of ourselves. We're made in His image, yes, everybody. Every human being is created in the image of God, but every human being is also a sinner and fallen and needs redemption, needs salvation. So to finish out verse 5, the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Can this be any clearer? What gets righteousness credited to our account? Believing in Him who justifies, His faith is counted as righteousness. It is faith in Christ, listen, or there is no righteousness. Period. That's just as plain as it can be spelled out. Jesus has done all the work. And our call is now to put our faith in Him and the work that He did to please God. Jesus pleased God with His life in the flesh And then it pleased God, according to Isaiah, to crush Him in order to pour out His wrath against our sins. And now that the price for our sins has been paid, Jesus is enthroned in heaven as King and calls us to put our faith in Him and His work. And that faith is the only way to be right with God. That faith is counted as your, my, our righteousness. You say, it seems like I've heard this a lot already in Romans. Yes, you have. What's the best way to learn something? Repetition, repetition, repetition. It's the three key principles of learning stuff. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Am I hear it again? I can repeat it if you want me to. Faith is counted as righteousness. Faith in the finished work of Christ. So and then we look at the end of this passage. And Paul brings up another Jewish source of pride just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed, David says, are those whose whose lawless deeds are forgiven 
and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This passage is like deja vu. It's, I feel like we're back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. In chapter 3, in that passage, we talked about the Jewishness of the Jews, their roots in Abraham, and then verse 4 of chapter 3 quoted a psalm of David. Paul's doing the exact same thing here. In, in chapter 3, the psalm that Paul was quoting of David was Psalm 51. And it was a psalm that David wrote after confessing his sin with Bathsheba. Well, here in chapter 4, we've talked about the Jewish roots in Abraham. And Paul quotes a psalm of David that David wrote after he confessed his sin with Bathsheba, which is actually Psalm 32. And Paul uses this part of Psalm 32 and gives us an explanation of it. And then he says, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So again, he's using the king of the Jews. When people thought king in Jewish minds, they thought David. He was the king. And God had made a covenant with David and said, somebody will always be on the throne of Israel from your seed, from your Offspring. I keep wanting to say a real funny word. And I'm not going to do it. King of the Jews. And he uses the king of the Jews, David, to complement the truth about Abraham being the father of the Jews. And the lesson they both are proclaiming is the blessedness of being counted as righteous apart from works. And what does David say? David speaks of the blessing of having lawless deeds forgiven, sins covered, and not having our sins counted against us. Here, David in no way pretends to not have sin, but he does revel in having those sins forgiven, having those sins covered, having those sins not counted against him. Twice in these three verses, we see our word count again, which is the accounting term. Let me go back because you need to see it. And I, it's important. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the law. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There is a counting going on all the way through this. So two times in those three verses we see that word count again. I want you to master that word. I want you to understand what that word means. And we're going to repeat it. And we're going to repeat it. And we're going to repeat it. Going forward, it's super important to understand this word count or account. We'll see it again and again and again and again. Hmm. Note the transactions that are taking place in David's account, which take place in your account. And see the beauty of your sins forgiven and not counted against you. This is a major blessing in being counted righteous. Your sins, which are many, my sins, which are many, are forgiven. They're covered and they're not counted against us. And that is a blessed thing. And it results not from works but from being declared righteous by a holy God. Again, what a blessing. He doesn't say work real hard and be real sorry so that I can forgive you. He says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So, we've worked through the passage. So, what does this mean for us? What is the application? Like a good preacher, State Farm is there. Three points of application. For those of you that want to preach, you need three points application. Okay? Write that down. That's important. First, and this is tricky, so I want to put it first in the application point. Know the place of faith and works in your Christian life. Know which one is which and which one produces which one. How was Abraham counted as righteous? According to Paul, According to God, back in Genesis, it was by His faith. And I don't know that we'd have much trouble appropriating this if it wasn't for a guy named James. Anybody ever heard of James? Like LeBron James? No, not LeBron James. King James? No, not King James. There was a guy named James. He was Jesus' half-brother. And he wrote a book called James. So arrogant, wasn't he? The name is book after himself. I'll write a book and call it Jason. I'm not going to do that. Now let me let me read this. This is a lengthy passage. Turn to James chapter four. 
if you have your Bible. I'm sorry, James chapter 2. Near the end of your Bible. Because this is problematic, or it seems problematic. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, then the book of James. So really, look how close I am to the end of my Bible. Pretty close. James chapter 2. Now we've been saying time and 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 time again, a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Faith, not works, produces righteousness. Now you would expect the half-brother of Jesus to come back and say, yes. Actually, James was probably the earliest book written in our New Testament. And he says something that seems to be not what we're talking about. I'm just going to read... Uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Listen to this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What do you mean? It should be righteousness, right? 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? What? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? What? That's spelled W-U-T. What? I'm going to read verse 21 again. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What? Now, does that not seem to unravel everything we just talked about? Have I got a problem with it? Does it confuse anybody? Does that seem confusing? Paul, righteousness by faith alone, by faith alone, by faith alone, by faith alone, by faith alone. And James steps in and says, You see that faith by itself if it doesn't have works, is dead. And you see that faith was active along with his works, and you see that people are justified not just by faith, but by works. So which is it? Who's right? Is Paul right? Is James right? What? The title of this message is what? I mean, seriously, does that bother anybody? I, I hope it bothers you because it seems like they are in contradiction to one another. Martin Luther said at one point of his ministry that he didn't think James should be in the Bible. What? It should be in the Bible. If these passages are contradictory to one another, we've got a Bible problem. We've got a problem with our Bible. Our Bible's not complete. It's not perfect. It's not completely inspired by God if these passages are contradictory. Either we're justified by faith alone or we're justified by faith and works. Which is it? Things like this make my stomach tremble. I'm like, ooh. It's a big passage and it says a lot, but my question for you is who is right? Is Paul James? <laughs> is Paul James or James Paul? Is Paul right or is James right? Paul says we are and that Abraham was justified by faith apart from works. James says Abraham and people in general are justified by works and not by faith alone. That's not a simple question, who's right, but it's a very important one. If Paul's right, it would seem that James is not, or vice versa. 
And if one of them is right and the other one's not, the Bible contains a contradiction. The good news is we know that that can happen. The Bible, as the inspired Word of God, cannot contradict itself. Now this would pertain well to our quest to understand the Old Testament too, which we'll get to in a minute. So if both are right, which is what I would propose, how can that be? It comes in the relationship between faith and works and the order at which they come. Paul cites Genesis 15 in his account of Abraham's justification. God established a covenant with him. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't need re-justified in Genesis 22, but his justification was seen or shown in Genesis 22, which is what James cites. This is true of our justification as well. Our belief in, our trust in Christ results in total justification in the moment that we are born again. As our lives progress, we start to see the works that result from having the very life of God in us. We are born again, given the righteousness of Christ and the Holy Spirit of God Himself at conversion, and that same righteousness and that same Holy Spirit begin to move us to action. If there are no works after your faith, that faith was not saving faith. R.C. Sproul says, profession of faith does not save, possession of faith saves. James points out that the demons believe, but theirs is not a saving faith. There is a dead faith that does not save, and we see that when no works are produced after the said profession of faith. We spent the whole book of 1 John talking about this very thing if you've been here with us that long. John says over and over and over again, this is what a believer looks like. This is what he does. This is what an unbeliever looks like. This is what he does. He says it time and time again. He also says, they went out from us. Why? Because they were never of us. He doesn't say they were never here. He didn't say they didn't profess faith. He just said they were here with us. And why did they leave us? They left us because they were never of us. They didn't have a saving faith. They may have professed faith, but they didn't possess faith. Oh, they were here, they were mouthing the right words, but they, were, they never were of us or they would have never left us. James says, you can say you have faith, but just saying it doesn't save you. Paul can say Abraham was justified by faith apart from works of the law, and he can say confidently, like he does in Romans 2.6, now listen, we've already covered this, God will render to each one according to his works. Oh, make no mistake, it will be our works that are judged on the day of judgment. In the last day when we stand before the judge, it will be our works that are judged. But it will have, it will have been our saving faith that led to those works. No faith means no justification. No works means there never was a faith there to bring about justification. And I am more than willing to talk more about that at lunch or whatever. Give me a call, text me, email... Facebook message, send me a tweet, whatever you want to do, I'm more than willing to talk about that Well, we don't have time to do it this morning. First point of application is know the relationship between faith and works. So, second point, I'm almost done. I want to urge you to master the Bible. And that point of application can seem obligatory, but I want to be a little bit more specific. Listen, church, master the Old Testament. Make it a very pointed goal to understand the God who governed both the Old and the New Covenant because He is the same God. And as such, so is His mode of redemption. Old Testament saints and New Testament saints were all made righteous by one means, grace through faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. David sinned and was forgiven by a gracious God in whom he placed his faith when he confessed his sins. We have a tendency to think of God as different which puts up a wall of hesitation, if not contempt for the God who shows Himself through the 39 books of the Old Testament. But when understood properly, we see a gracious God who calls for His people to place their faith in Him to be declared righteous. The Old Testament saints looked forward to the cross as they sacrificed their animals, knowing that God required a blood sacrifice to remove sins. Now they surely didn't know all the details and how it would all come to be, but God faithfully revealed Himself and pointed toward the day of deliverance. And that day, of, that day was fulfilled when Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice. So much detail, so much grace shown over the 4,000 years covered in the Old Testament. So much of a God we can know so much better if we will just get our hands dirty digging around in the Old Covenant. 
Make it a lifelong labor to love and to master the Old Testament so that you can understand the New Covenant all the better. So, finally, we've seen know the relationship between faith and works, master the Old Testament. Saturate yourselves, church, in the truth that your sins are forgiven if you're a follower of Christ. This is a two-part truth. First, realize your sins. Recognize that they are many and that you fall short a lot. And when you do sin, confess those sins and know that because of the blood of Jesus, those sins are not counted against you. Got any Avengers fans in here? Any Marvel fans? Anybody see the Avengers movie? If you didn't, this ain't going to mean much to you. Sorry. But if you did, I'm kind of counting on the bulk of people getting a hold of this. There's a scene in the first Avengers movie where Loki is talking to Natasha Romanoff, also known as who? Black Widow. Black Widow! She has done atrocious things in her past, and Loki, like the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, is taunting her, reminding her of her past. Listen to the interchange. Natasha says, before I worked for S.H.I.E.L.D., I, uh, well, I made a name for myself. I have a very specific skill set. I didn't care who I used it on, who I used it for or on. I got on S.H.I.E.L.D.'s radar in a bad way. Agent Barton was sent to kill me. He made a different call. Loki says, and what will you do if I vow to spare him? She says, not let you out. He's in a cage thing. He smiles and says, no, but I like this. Your world in the balance and you bargain for one man. She says, regimes fall every day. I tend not to weep over that. I'm Russian, or was. Loki says, and what are you now? Listen, she says, it's really not that complicated. I've got red in my ledger. I'd like to wipe it out. And he says, can you? Can you wipe out that much red? Drakov's daughter, Sao Paulo, the hospital fire? Barton told me everything, Loki said. Your ledger is dripping. It's gushing red. And you think saving a man no more virtuous than yourself will change anything? This is the basis sentimentality. This is a child at prayer. Pathetic! You lie and kill in the service of liars and killers. You pretend to be separate, to have your own code, something that makes up for the honors, but they are a part of you and they will never go away. Anybody ever feel that way about your sins? You look back at your ledger and it's dripping with red. And the enemy comes and he says, that's never going away. That will always be there. You suck. Satan would have you look at your ledger and see your sins. Your many gushing red sins that can't be wiped out. But check the ledger. There's been some creative accounting that's going on in your ledger if you are a child of God. According to the Holy Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul, your account shows no sins. None! And in your account it says the very righteousness of Christ. Your account shows paid in full and given the very righteousness of Jesus by the grace of God. Yes, know that your sins are many, but also know that those sins are atoned for. They're paid for, they're forgiven, and they are not held against you. And let that amaze you and move you to worship. May it increase your faith, lead you to good works, and draw you to the Bible to know the God who has revealed Himself there and love Him and be loved by Him with a clean account. Gushing, dripping with red, washed clean by the blood of Jesus and counted righteous. Place your faith in that and you are justified. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your goodness, Your kindness, Your grace that extends to us well beyond what we deserve. We do not earn or deserve this righteousness. It is a gift and we respond in faith to You and say we believe You to be who You said You are. We believe that You did what You said You did and we believe that Jesus is who Your Scriptures paint Him to be. And because of Him, our sins are forgiven. Now may our faith produce works in us and may we be drawn to Your Word 
to know that all the more. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And may you be glorified in and through us as we rejoice and worship you for our forgiven sins and our justification. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for benediction? I know I've went too long and I'm sorry. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24 says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen church, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all the church said, Amen. You're dismissed.